From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers magazine, The National Conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, March 28th through Friday, April 1st, 2022. It was a week of high prices, war, and foolish behavior, starting with the Oscars and ending with April Fool's Day. We're about to embark upon a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely, and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism, regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey with the Talkers' Top 10 Stories of the Week, along with Harry Hurley, Steve Wiseman, Victoria Jones, Todd Feinberg, and Arthur Idala. An impressive array of influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast to coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, big tech and social media. The general feeling being expressed on talk shows week after week is that big tech has become so powerful and monopolistic that it has the ability to infringe upon the spirit of the First Amendment, if not the actual letter of the law, and that conservatives are taking the brunt of this censorship more so than liberals. There's the growing infringement on privacy issue that both sides agree is being imposed upon all Americans by the folks in Silicon Valley. Meantime, Truth Social, Donald Trump's newly launched social media platform being promoted as an alternative to Twitter, has reportedly suffered a significant 93% decline in new users since its bumpy launch last month. At number nine, foreign affairs. There's a big buzz on talk shows across America exploring the increasing strain on U.S. relations with Russia China, Iran, and North Korea. Not to mention the rapidly evolving connections and heightened unity between the United States and its NATO allies, particularly the UK, France, Germany, and especially Poland, which is located right on the border with Ukraine. The Russian-Ukraine war is significantly influencing the course of America's complicated, competitive, and increasingly adversarial relationship with China. At number eight, the Oscars slap heard round the world. It was a case of off-the-chart celebrity gossip. Actor Will Smith unexpectedly walked onto the stage during last weekend's live, nationally televised Academy Awards ceremony and slapped comedian Chris Rock across the face in anger. Rock had cracked an unkind joke about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith's baldness, which as it turned out is due to the disease alopecia. 
the unscripted incident exploded into a week of heated talk show conversation that included a variety of social, political, racial, legal, and medical issues. Meanwhile, it's proved to be the biggest buzz, perhaps the only buzz generated by the anemically rated Oscar show that has devolved into a faded echo of Hollywood's glory days when going to the movies was a cultural ritual. Now in the era of streaming with the rise of home theaters and portable viewing, we must ask, what exactly is a movie anyway? At number seven, the Supreme Court vacancy tied with race relations. The top members of the Senate Judiciary Committee are lining up each political side's arguments about Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court, which is now officially set for a panel vote on Monday. Well, the Republicans have been making the case that Brown-Jackson is soft on crime and that Biden's promise to specifically nominate an African-American woman is blatant reverse racism. The way the numbers have lined up, it appears she will likely be narrowly confirmed by the Senate. At number six, the 2022 and 2024 elections tied with crime. As a matter of fact, despite voters' understandable concern over such issues as the Ukraine war and the economy, the high rate of crime in our nation's cities is driving the midterm elections. Both Republican and Democrat voters are fed up with soft district attorneys and less-than-vigilant policing. And looking ahead to the presidential election still a couple of years from now, there remains a focus on and questions about Donald Trump's shifting level of influence as the de facto leader of the GOP going forward. At number five, the Hunter Biden investigation. The federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business practices appears to be broader than previously realized, at least by the mainstream media, which now seems to be getting on board, with multiple sources indicating the probe is exploring whether the younger Biden and his business associates violated tax, money laundering, and foreign lobbying laws. And of course, we mustn't forget about that world-famous laptop now purportedly in the possession of the FBI. At number four, the January 6th committee. The big name of the week was Jared Kushner, former President Trump's senior advisor, as well as his son-in-law, who testified on Thursday for several hours by remote. Kushner, the husband of Ivanka Trump, provided what was described by a panel member as helpful information to the Democratic-led House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Meantime, there have been calls from the far-left wing of the Democratic Party, particularly AOC, for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to step down due to the committee findings last week about his wife Ginny's connection to Trump's alleged plans to mount a coup and overturn the election of Joe Biden to the presidency. At number three, COVID-19. Although there is still concern over variants potentially triggering another wave of the coronavirus, and discussion continues over the efficacy of vaccines and boosters to combat that possibility, Americans seem to be slowly but surely attempting to return to some sort of normalcy in hope that the worst of COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror. Meantime, all eyes are on a number of foreign hotspots, such as the massive city of Shanghai, China, where the pandemic is reportedly still spreading and draconian lockdowns are being enforced. At Number two, the economy. The big issues remain in play, runaway inflation, supply chain breakdowns, and labor shortages. Americans continue to feel the pinch of our economic sanctions on Russia. In the meantime, President Biden has ordered an unprecedented release of oil from U.S. reserves in an effort to reverse the alarming rise of gasoline prices. And at number one this week, the Russia-Ukraine war. The bloody, destructive war has been grinding on now for a month and a half, and although things have not proceeded as well as Russia had hoped, it is exacting a horrible toll on the lives of the brave and determined Ukrainian people. With mixed results coming from the peace talks at which Russia says at the table it's slowing down its military assault, but 
is doing quite the opposite on the ground in real time. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. The big Oscar ceremony brouhaha between Will Smith and Chris Rock created a buzz that lasted the entire week, and it's still making waves one weekend later. We're joined by the morning mayor of Atlantic City, New Jersey, and Talkers Heavy 100 member Harry Hurley of our affiliate WPG. Harry, are you surprised people are still talking about this a week later? Not surprised at all. It seems to be just the kind of thing that will get anybody's attention, an intellectual's attention, people that are not as intellectually curious. We had a pretty unique situation happen in that Chris Rock was in Atlantic City performing just a couple of days after the famous slap that was heard around the world. So there was a lot of buzz here in our market. And what was your take on it? Obviously, you talked about it on the air. Um, Did you have a take or did you have an evolving take as different aspects of the story emerged? I like the second thing you said. I'm always open that things are not always as they appear. Now, it's clear that Will Smith was aggressive and he slapped him in the face and all of that. What I wanted to know was, and it was important to me for some reason, I don't know if it was important to you, Michael, I wanted to know if Chris Rock knew that Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia. Because if he knew it and he told a cruel, bald joke, you know, I can't wait to see you in G.I. Jane 2, that would be one thing. It turns out, and I believe him, I think Chris Rock comes out better than Will Smith. Some people think Will Smith is also a winner here. I say he's a loser here. Chris Rock did not know that Jada Pinkett Smith had alopecia. I think it was a harmless joke in light of that and that Will Smith was way over the top. And something's going to have to be done about it. I mean, you can't you can't get away with that. I don't think he should have his Academy Award taken from him. But Something's got to be done. Well, what would you do? What, what would you do if you were um, I, I, I running I put the out thing? what I said was the Hurley Doctrine. I said that I would suspend him for one year, no consideration, even if he did the best work of his career. Any work that he would be in would be ineligible for Academy consideration, and that he would be denied the opportunity to present the Best Actor Award uh, for next year's Academy Awards, and then he's invited back starting the next year. I don't think it's a a career-ender, but I think a year suspension would, would be warranted, and the reason, if there was something relevant that could happen sooner than that, I'm saying a year because really the only way to punish him is to take it until the next Academy Award show because he messed up this one, although uh, the law of unintended consequences, he probably helped the second lowest rated show in history actually have more viewers than it would have had. Well, clearly, as a matter of fact, I, I, I think, you know, when they say if they spell your name right, no publicity is bad publicity in this world. He actually actually did a favor to the Academy yeah. Awards and to the oh, Oscars. And, and Michael, look, look if... Um, if they have the numbers, and they should, as you know, when a program builds, they can tell you what the first hour did, what the second hour did. If you look at the numbers after he did that, now, of course, they're going to say, well, best picture is coming up, best actor, and all of it. I guarantee you those numbers spiked up because people knew, hey, in one hour, Will Smith, he was kind of the favorite. I mean, it didn't have to go his way, but I don't think, I, I figured he was going to win with his role in King Richard, and he did a great job in it, and it was Academy worthy work. And so everybody knows, hey, this guy might be walking up there in less than an hour. Let's hear what he says. Does he apologize? Does he not apologize? Does he apologize to the Academy and his fellow actors, but not Chris Rock? So I I think he helped 
the telecast, which is kind of ironic. Let's switch gears uh, here. What is a film in 2022? What What is the silver screen? What is a movie? What is a theatrical presentation? I mean, think about, you know, The Crown is a 40-hour movie on Netflix, in my opinion. It's like Lawrence of yeah. Arabia on steroids, and yet it's basically in the Emmy competition. It's a, uh, it's a television show. Do, do you think that we, in this modern age of mixed media streaming, platforms and uh, the pandemic and everything else that perhaps the idea of there being a separate art form known as the motion picture, the whole Hollywood thing, that that's come to an end? Yes, it's over. Now, they'll use like I did, and we do this in other aspects of society. We continue to use words that don't really exist. Somebody might say they read the newspaper, but did they read a newspaper or did they read a digital uh, imprint? So we're going to use words transferably for a period of time, and even that will probably evolve. But the motion picture as we know it is over. As you know well, Michael, the streaming services won the night. Uh, it's it's a whole new game. Fascinating to see such a part of uh, our popular culture. I mean, our generation that grew up in the 20th century, uh, I mean, going to the movies was a weekend ritual. When I was a kid, going to the movies was what you did. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, 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 and you knew every film that was up for awards and movie stars were were big icons. Um I think the thing that I've learned, um, you know, having been around a while, and, and you're certainly not as old as I am, but, but and you sound like you're 20 years old and you've been on the air for decades, um, is that so many of the cultural touchstones, the milestones, the icons of the 20th century are disappearing before our eyes and ears. Yes, it, it, it's true. And... It used to be that they would be backfilled. A lot of the greats, if you go back to an era, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, and that era, oh my gosh, who's going to come next? It's almost like baseball. Babe Ruth, oh my God, who's coming next? Hey, there's Mickey Mantle after Joe DiMaggio. Hey, there's Derek Jeter after this one. Hey, there's Mike Trout after this one. There was always someone backfilling. I have a working theory, and you and I have had a chance to talk about it uh, on my show and, and, and off air that it's all going to be different. I think that CGI is coming into play. I don't think there's going to be big stars. I think everything is going to be different. But we're still use the same type of language because it's conversational, it's understandable. You cut a record with Gun Hill Road, and I played it on my show. Uh, but you didn't, did you cut a record, or didn't you do a digital recording? Uh, maybe you did cut a, a record. There was, no, there, was no, there was no vinyl, and there actually, we never even had to have a CD. But uh, the, the leader of the band, Steve Goldrich, is kind of an old-school guy, and he wanted to have a, an artifact of it. So their albums, I say they, I'm part of it, our albums, are put out on CD. But you know something today? You don't even have to put out a CD to have a hit album. And that's the point. But yet they call it, we, we put a new album out. Right. So we'll use the language, but we will do it with modern technology. That's Harry Hurley of our Atlantic City, New Jersey affiliate WPG. Coming up next, a conversation with one of the good guys watching our backs in the era of escalating scams. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap.
Bernadette Duncan spent 26 years as a radio talk show producer. In her new book, Yappy Days, Behind the Scenes with Newsers, Schmoozers, Boozers, and Losers, she shares her adventures in the trenches of big-time talk radio during the changing backdrop of America's pre- and post-9-11 realities. This exciting story includes Bernadette's impressions of the quirky celebrity talk show hosts whom she served during her career. Larry King, Sally Jesse Raphael, Gil Gross, Tom Snyder, Lou Dobbs, Charles Osgood, and more. It's full of anecdotes about hundreds of high-profile guests from media, show business, and politics. Also quirky, ego-driven, and neurotic. Yappy Days, behind the scenes with newsers, schmoozers, boozers, and losers, an analytical look at the media, journalism, and the complex nature of ego. Get it now at Amazon.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap. The number one topic on the talker's chart continues to be the Russia-Ukraine war. Joining us now is law professor at Bentley University in Boston and the founder of Scamicide.com, Steve Wiseman. I would think it's uh, a given that there are a tremendous number of scams out there that are tied into uh, charities to help the people of Ukraine. Yeah, this is uh, something we've, we've seen Every time there is uh, some kind of uh, major event or emergency uh, or something that needs the charitable gifts of people, the scammers are there to take the money. They, they have no scruples whatsoever. And uh, they were the, the first responders when it came to Ukraine. They were setting up uh, phony charity websites. They were texting. They were calling uh, people, emailing them uh, with phony websites and uh, phony charities, sometimes sounding like like legit and uh, it can be very difficult to know if it is legit or not so the key thing is is a, a great free website called charitynavigator.org and this website will do two things for you you put in the name of the charity and it will tell you whether it is legitimate or not and contact information so if a scammer is posing as a legitimate charity uh, you'll know that but it'll also tell you how much of what that particular charity collects goes towards its charitable purposes and how much goes towards their own salaries and administrative costs. So it's a, it's a great way of making sure that your money is going to go to the right people. What about giving money to an established charity that does have a tremendous amount of expenses? Say, let's take the American Red Cross. Um, yep. Obviously, it costs a lot of money to run the Red Cross, so they, a larger percentage of each dollar that goes to them might be used for expenses more so than a smaller charity, but um, they have the muscle to to do good work. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag on that. You know, it, it's something that if you do have something like the uh, the Red Cross, you can say, okay, they, they've got the experience you're knowing with it. And you may be going to a, uh, a smaller charity that uh, is going to be using much more of it towards its charitable purpose, but you've got to look into uh, how effective uh, they are. Um, I've uh, personally looked at some that were uh, pretty much focused uh, on Ukraine uh, specifically. And, you know, there are a number of them. Uh, you know, frankly, this charity navigator uh, that I mentioned, they rank charities and they give them uh, ratings uh, over uh, how effective they are. And they kind of combine those two things. Are they big enough to get the job done? And are they effective at doing it? Now, the feeling we've all gotten over the last few years, especially with elections and with tampering and the whole worry about cyber war is that the Russians 
are pretty talented, pretty adept at manipulating and handling themselves in this new digital world of, uh, you know, intrigue. And yet, shockingly, uh, as this war unfolds, and we're in the second month of it, one of the Achilles heels uh, of the Russian military machine has been, you know, loose lips sink ships. They, they've, they've been, their communications have been intercepted. The Ukrainians uh, seem to know where they're going, what they're doing, and meeting them at the past before they're even ready. How is this happening? Well, paradoxically, and it, it does bring a smile to my face, this is something that uh, you could look at both the United States and Russia. The United States uh, talents and our intelligence community as far as being able to uh, do aggressive cyber attacks is on a par with the Russians and perhaps even better. But our defenses are extremely lacking. And frankly, that's what it is with the Russians, too. You would think and we would assume that uh, they would have their defenses as good as their offenses, but they're not. They're, they're terribly vulnerable. And what a lot of people don't realize is, uh, one, the, uh, the Russians have used uh, attacks, cyber attacks against Ukraine in the past. So they were, to a certain extent, ready for this. But beyond that, the Ukrainian uh, cyber people are really, really good. And they have been tremendously effective at disrupting battlefield communications uh, of uh, the Russian army. And uh, the Russian army has shown to be quite defective. It very much reminds me, I mean, before the Iraq war, all we kept hearing was Saddam Hussein's armies are incredible. Uh, not so much. And with the Russians, uh, the armies have not been terribly effective. But as you mentioned, the most interesting thing is you would think the cyber capabilities would be terrific there, but they aren't. And defense is something throughout the world, for some reason, uh, countries uh, fail to do. That's Steve Wiseman, law professor at Bentley University in Boston and founder of the website Scamicide.com. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Let's stay with the Russia-Ukraine war for another insightful conversation. We're joined now by our Washington correspondent, the executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. There's a story that I've been following with great interest, which is about these peace talks. And that is that Roman Abramovich, who is the owner of one of the biggest sports teams in the world, Chelsea Football Club, which is a, a major, major soccer club in the Premier League in the UK, got involved in the peace talks. He's also sanctioned, by the way, by the UK because he's Russian. He got involved on the Ukrainian side for the Ukrainians. So that's the first twist. The second twist is he and two Ukrainian officials involved in these talks suddenly started feeling really unwell. I mean, so unwell, skin peeling, temporary blindness, things like this, that um, scientists started to examine them. Apparently, he asked the scientists, are we dying? And it turns out they they've determined that they think they were poisoned during the peace talks, probably by what is 
at the time, a chemical agent that was used during the First World War and killed 91,000 soldiers. Oh, my goodness. So, so what, do you, what, what is your gut instinct when you hear a thing like this? Is it just misinformation and uh, propaganda, or, or can it in fact be true? I don't have any doubt that this can be true. Um, Vladimir Putin's regime has a history of using poison as a deterrent and as a weapon. Uh, he has used Novichok, which is a, a chemical agent, to attempt to kill spies in foreign countries. And this apparently was not in a sufficient quantity to kill. It's being seen, according to people sort of who know this, mm -hmm. as more of a warning, like lay off. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, any thought about this guy being um, civilized or being reasonable when compared to some of the um, the former leaders, you know, back of the, in the days of the Soviet Union, boy, um, are those ideas going out the window really quickly. I'm thinking back to a um, conversation we had uh, in a recent, uh, a recent edition of the Michael Harrison rap in which you talked about Putin being in a bubble, uh, you know, where he's surrounded by yes people and um, people are actually afraid to give him bad news because um, you know, it's almost like a cliche. You know, they, they blame the messenger. Um, uh, Joseph Stalin was known for that. If you looked at him cross-eyed, you could be his best friend. He'd have you executed. Um, he'd shoot you at the table. I, maybe I'm being overly uh, dramatic. But um, Putin uh, doesn't seem to be getting the best information. What are you hearing in terms of, you know, that isolation and, and misinformation that he's getting from his own intelligence people? Well, there is declassified information from U.S. intelligence now that he did get bad information at the beginning of the war from his own intelligence. Why? But it seems they didn't want to give him the full story. And by the way, Two senior intelligence officials in, in Russia are under house arrest for giving bad info. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a real thing. And it's partly because he's so isolated, so isolated. He didn't know there were conscripts fighting in the war, apparently. He didn't know about the levels of deaths. And partly, you've got to blame him. He didn't want to know. He didn't make it his business to find out. What's the feeling among um, your connections back in your native UK, which of course is one of our great allies and now alliances mean more than ever. What's the feeling about the, um, the Russia-Ukraine war in terms of your sources in, uh, back in England? The feeling is immense sympathy for Ukraine uh, and a little worry also about the uh, big increase in the cost of living in Europe as a result of this, but immense sympathy for Ukraine, always worry that something like this could spread. But uh, there is a great hatred of tyrants and a seeing of Putin as a spy. He's a former spy, a former head of the Russian spy service. Another reason why it should have been his business to find these things out. And so there's a, there's a real, uh, they, they view him as despicable. 
That's our esteemed Washington correspondent, the executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. The economy and politics go hand in hand. Joining us now is one of the most politically engaged radio talk show hosts in America, Todd Feinberg of our affiliate in Hartford, Connecticut, the great WTIC. How is the current uh, economic situation that Americans are facing? How's it playing out in Connecticut, and what are your listeners saying? Well, from the government point of view, you know what's interesting is is that everything is about how do you... How do you look at a budget surplus and figure out if that means that there's good government going on? And, and the, the government is trying to tell us they're doing a bang-up job, you know, on a state level, because they have a lot of money floating around. But they forget to mention that it's all because of COVID. And if it wasn't for a deadly pandemic that has uh, taken hold of the country for two years now, that they wouldn't be bragging about what a great job they are managing budgets. So that's one part of the economy is taxes. And if you type in budget surplus into Google, it's amazing how many states pop up with where the politicians are trying to figure out how much money to give to people during during the you know, the election season to make them feel good about how wonderful they've been managing the state when they've gotten billions of dollars from Washington. Very interesting. Last week we had a similar um, uh, explanation of the um, so-called budget surplus in California, where uh, the governor uh, is playing around with the numbers, cooking the book, so to speak, to give the impression that there's a lot uh, more of a positive economy than there is. That's uh, Well, you, you, you keep the politicians locally. You keep their feet to the fire, that's for sure. Oh, I love beating them up, because all they do is lie. The <laughs> governor in California He's a Democrat who's running for re-election this year, and he ran for office promising that he would only propose tolls and only support tolls on trucks. And then as soon as he was elected and sworn in, he switched and started going after cars and spent his first year in office raising taxes by over a billion dollars and pursuing a billion dollars in tolls. It would have been the largest tolling state in New England, despite the fact that it's a pretty small place. And now he just launched his first re-election commercial, and it talks about how for years the politicians couldn't get it done. But me, the businessman, I cruise into office and had no problem balancing the budget without raising taxes. I was saying, wait a second. The, the budget is in surplus because of COVID, because of COVID dollars from Washington, and because of how big the stock market is and because there's so many evil rich people paying big taxes on stock market earnings in the state of Connecticut. Evil, evil and, rich people. And, and, and he's raised taxes like a maniac and wanted to raise them a lot more, but he's just outright lying about it. So I have a question for you that um, I'm sure comes up a lot. I know you talk about it on your show. You have a huge audience that turns to you for, for this type of insight. How come the Republican Party is so consistently weak over the years in Connecticut? Because all of government is set up for rewarding the ruling party. Whichever party is in control controls all the money. And they use all the money for their own parties and their own personal advancement. There is no program, as far as I can tell, and no budget that doesn't have behind it the intent of helping the ruling party win elections. While I have you, real quick, um, what's going on in terms of your conversation on the air about the Hunter Biden investigation? 
Oh, it's so interesting in terms of the insights it provides about the rig system, Bernie Sanders language. So I'm being bipartisan here. The rig system in terms of the the dissemination of information and how how hard the the left works to make sure that news only gets broken by them and that a big story that was broken by the New York Post, a conservative tabloid on Hunter Biden's laptop, was ignored until recently. And then the New York Times did a story on it a few weeks ago, and now the Washington Post has. And suddenly, it's a mainstream story, and it's about time. You know, I I have to confess, though, I I don't love a story as a talk host that's a Fox News type story that reads to me like and in this way, I'm scared that maybe I've got a little too much indoctrination from the left-wing media, but I'm reluctant to go after stories like that, and I'm late to it as well. That's Todd Feinberg, who's heard afternoons on her affiliate in Hartford, Connecticut, WTIC. Coming up next, a conversation with a real-life Perry Mason. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Crime and justice continue to be hot topics on the talk shows of America, and they're playing a significant role in determining the course of politics and elections. The very special guest this week on my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, is one of America's leading criminal defense attorneys. He's based in New York City and has been a regular go-to guy for legal analysis on all the big TV networks for years. He recently launched his own daily radio talk show on AM 970, The Answer in the Big Apple. Here's an excerpt from the podcast conversation I had with Arthur Idala. So what's your take on the national crime problem? You know, I remember, well, I'm 54 years old, so I remember well going to Broadway shows with my family. And literally, uh, I remember the first show I saw was Annie. The second show, I saw, show that I saw was The King and I with Yul Brenner. And I could tell you when the show would end, 
you know, my dad would tell me, hold my mother's hand, and he would hold my sister's hand. That's, that was the whole family. And we would literally, like, run from the theater to the subway because it was that scary at Times Square at 1030 whenever the, the show would get out. And then you would sit in the subway with the conductor car, and the subway was covered with graffiti, and there was litter, and there was urine. And, you know, look, the dynamic duo of New York was Rudy Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg, right? <clears throat> Rudy basically cleaned the canvas, and then Michael Bloomberg painted a beautiful mural onto it. And But some people obviously were left out of that painting that Michael Bloomberg drew uh, because uh, <clears throat> Bill de Blasio, who I supported because I knew him for a very long time, um, he ran on this Tale of Two Cities platform. And I thought it was ridiculous. I'm like, what, is he crazy? But I was the one who was crazy because he won in a very crowded field. He won. And he wanted to swing the pendulum back the other way. And he did to some degree that people who were disenfranchised under the Giuliani Bloomberg administration, that's 20 years of those two men running the city. And... You know, things lightened up and the arrests lightened up and uh, law enforcement didn't feel the support that they had felt previously, even though Bill Bratton, who was Giuliani's police commissioner, was de Blasio's police commissioner. Uh, somehow or another, there became an aura of, eh, it's okay to jump the turnstile. Eh, it's okay to do a little shoplifting. And that's the that's the beginning of the end. You know, once you start saying this guy can jump the turnstile while I have to take out my wallet, expose myself, swipe a Metro card, and making me now vulnerable, That's th that that's changes the tide. Now, so that starts heading in that direction, and then, boom, you get hit with COVID. And that just changes everyone's mindset, everyone's head. And, I mean, the reason why, if you look in a crowded Democratic field, the re one of the reasons why Eric Adams emerged as the victor had to do with his 22 years as law enforcement. Um, so he's able to say, I'm the law enforcement candidate. But as an African-American, he could also say, I, you know, and I'm going to be the law enforcement guy who makes sure you guys don't get picked on just because you're black people. Because I think that was that was the whole stop and frisk thing is, you know, well, what, what is he guilty of? He's guilty of walking while black. And if he's walking while black, we're going to stop him and frisk him and see what's going on. So Eric Adams was able to say, I know how to keep the city safe without being uh, prejudiced. Because when I was a cop for 22 years, I fought against that type of prejudice. And look, it's no secret. I filled in for Piscopo, I guess it was almost three years ago now. And I had Eric Adams on. And I endorsed him then. He hadn't even announced. Um, but I saw that he had the qualities to bring the African-American community who, who has a complicated relationship with the NYPD and the NYPD as a former member of it to try to bring them together. And listen, he's not even in 100 days yet, um, but he's trying. I mean, he called in this week. He called in the, the chief of police and the police commissioner and said, you guys aren't doing enough. You're not doing a good enough job. I want you to double down. I want more guys on the street. I want more enforcement. So you got to give him a little time to breathe. And um, I, I am very hopeful that the future is bright. Look, Eric Adams, uh, chief of staff is Frank Carone. He's been a friend of mine for 30 years. Uh, he's been on my show twice. I, I anticipate he'll be on one day next week. Now, you're reported to be a disciple of the late Supreme Court Justice uh, Antonin Scalia. Obviously, uh, you have opinions about the Supreme Court. That's been in the news, obviously, with the uh, hearings. And, and I noticed talking to you that uh, you're not an ideologue, um, even though I guess you would be 
described as a as a conservative or leaning conservative. It's funny because you said you know, people will call me a conservative. People who call me a conservative are none of my conservative friends, including Justice Scalia. He used to call me a pinko liberal commie uh, because huh. I, I also like to play devil's advocate and I like to challenge people and I like to challenge people's opinions and their ideas. And I like them to dig a little deeper than just giving me the rote. Hey, I'm a conservative. OK, well, let's discuss this topic and let's discuss that topic. And as a criminal defense attorney, you know. Many quote unquote conservatives who are very pro law enforcement and the FBI could do nothing wrong until their loved one is the defendant. And then they're sitting on the other side of my desk saying, wait a minute, hold on. There's no witness here. How could they arrest this person on this? Wait a minute. The, the evidence is so slight. How could they hold him on that? How could they sentence him that long? So all of a sudden, their their conservatism and their belief in the system goes out the window when it hits home. And it's kind of interesting for me to see that. I mean, Michael, people I mean, how do you do what you do? How do you sleep at night? You represent these pieces of garbage. And then I get a call from that exact person who said that sometimes it's a week later and sometimes it's two years later. Yeah, Art, uh, I need to see you, uh, my nephew or my cousin or my brother or my wife, you know, or in a pickle. And, and then they come in and they realize what's going on. So I'm not I'm, I, I've always gone. I vote. I vote vigilantly vigilantly i always vote <laughs> and i never vote i've never once voted down the line i look at the person i study the people who i'm going to vote for and and then i pull republican democrat uh, conservative liberal whatever working parties independence party uh, you know whatever it is uh, reform party if it's a person who i think is the best for the job I am not so uh, wed to uh, the political party and the political system. I'm a big supporter of Michael Bloomberg's plan to get rid of uh, political parties and let's just vote for people who we think can get the job done. In terms of the United States Supreme Court, um, this justice who uh, we're talking about right now. Um, it's Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, look, what I like about her, and this is not a very conservative point of view, she was a trial judge. She was in the trenches for eight years. Of the nine justices, well, the eight that are there now without her, the only other person who tried cases was Justice Sotomayor. I mean, for example, uh, Justice Kagan, who is was appointed by President Obama, you know, she was the dean of Harvard Law School, and then she was the solicitor general, who's the person who argues the cases, but she was never a judge who sat in the courtroom. And I think that experience is invaluable when you're judging cases uh, at the highest level to know what people really go through. Uh, meaning, when I say people, I mean the lawyers, the litigators, and the individuals. So uh, she's been a judge long enough. I'm not thrilled with the fact that uh, that uh, President Biden, oh, I'm going to appoint the first black woman. And then I see, I did it. I did it. To me, that diminishes who this judge is. <clears throat> when Justice Scalia was appointed by President Reagan, Everyone knew he was the first Italian-American. Everyone knew that an Italian-American needed to be appointed because there's so many Italian-Americans in the United States of America. But he never, Ronald Reagan, number one, never campaigned when he ran for re-election. Oh, and in my second term, I'm going to appoint an Italian-American. When he introduced him, he didn't say, oh, he is the first Italian-American. He said, here's a great jurist who I think is going to be fantastic on the United States Supreme Court. And when you heard the name Scalia and he talked about his parents coming over from Sicily, it was obvious who he was. So the political 
you know, meandering, it diminishes who I want to know that I'm the best lawyer or I'm picked for a case because I'm the, I'm, I'm the one they feel is the best for that case. Not because, oh, yeah, we're picking him because we, we need uh, more bald lawyers or we need more, you know, Sicilian lawyers or we need more lawyers from Brooklyn. Um, but with that being said, you know, the whole process of how they pick judges, justices is kind of a farce now since uh, just Judge Bork, he spoke his mind at his uh, his hearing back in the 80s and he was rejected because he was he was too candid and too forthright. So now they just play this game where the justices do their best not to answer the questions. But I think, you know, the court will be it's not going to change the balance of the court because she's replacing Justice Breyer, who she actually worked for, who, you know, leaned in the 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 more of a left direction. Uh, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, they reported Clarence Thomas didn't feel well the other day. Obviously, people in the Biden administration wouldn't mind him saying, well, because of my health, I'm going to retire. And now, you know, that would change the balance of the court. But we shall see. I mean, don't you should. I hate when people pigeonhole justices because especially Justice Scalia, he surprised so many people. He ruled that you could burn the American flag. He ruled so many cases in favor of criminal defendants that overturned verdicts because he said what they did violated the United States Constitution. Even though I don't like the fact that they could burn the American flag, if it's your American flag under the First Amendment, you you could burn it. He told me he hated that decision, but he knew he did the right thing because he hated that decision, but he still wrote the wrote the opinion the way he thought the law dictated he needed to write it. That's Arthur Idala, one of the most respected criminal defense trial lawyers in America and a talk show host in New York City at AM 970, The Answer. The conversation you just heard was excerpted from my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, and you can hear the whole thing at mhinterview.com. You're plugged into The Michael Harrison Rap. We have time for one more brief item. As many of you know, I'm a member of the classic rock group Gun Hill Road. I want to share with you a very rough version of a song we're recording on our forthcoming fifth album. It's titled Idiots. It might just be about someone you know. Thinking's on a holiday for many folks every day. Spewing words of fear and hate makes our culture second rate. Let's start out with easy stuff, then the stuff that's far more tough. Here at home and overseas, ignorance is the real disease. Idiots walk among us, they're lazy, lazy, lazy. Idiots talk among us, their speech is often hazy. Idiots talk among us, never ceases to amaze me. Idiots talk among us, drives me crazy, crazy, crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. They cherry pick and reaffirm half-baked dumb ideas. Nod their heads to anything that feeds their hate and fears. Always blaming others for their own damn lack of vision. Buy whatever sold them by the merchants of division. Idiots walk among us, they're lazy, lazy, lazy. Idiots talk among us, their speech is often hazy. Idiots talk among us, never ceases to amaze me. Idiots talk among us, drives me crazy, crazy, crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. 
A fool will always be a fool, left, right, blue, or red. It pays to have an open mind, but not an empty head. Life is full of mysteries, don't mean to sound aloof. But knuckleheads seek victory at the expense of truth. Idiots walk among us, they're lazy, lazy, lazy. Idiots talk among us, their speech is often hazy. Idiots talk among us, never ceases to amaze me. Idiots talk among us, drives me crazy, crazy, crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. Idiots walk among us, they're lazy, lazy, lazy. Idiots talk among us, their speech is often hazy. Idiots talk among us, never ceases to amaze me. Idiots walk among us, drives me crazy, crazy, crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. The truth is not a mystery, if only you know history. Crazy. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. It's a uh, extremely rough version of a brand new song the classic rock band Gun Hill Road, in which I'm a member, is recording for our upcoming fifth album. It's titled Idiots, and it's not available anywhere at this point because it's not even officially recorded. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Rap, an overview of the national conversation, looking back at the week of Monday, March 28th through Friday, April 1st, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelattalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Mm-hmm.